You're listening to Zeidler Group's Legal Zeitgeist podcast, the funds law podcast series that helps asset management firms reevaluate and revolutionize their current approach to investment funds law with the latest technology, legal and regulatory compliance insights, and best practices. Hello, my name is Kunal Grupa. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Thilo Zeidler, who is CFO and product owner at the Zeidler Group. On today's episode, we will be discussing the ongoing and difficult topic of transaction costs. And hopefully, Thilo can simplify transaction costs, not only for myself, but all the listeners. So, Thilo, welcome. Hi, Kunal. Thank you. How are you? Good, good, good. Trying to stay afloat with all this regulation coming in and transaction costs is just one of the things that I see popping up all the time. So I think it's a good time to catch up with you and just check in what's happening with transaction costs, get a bit more detail. Yeah, that's true. I agree. It's 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 really a topic that I also come across various times, even before joining. It's a tricky one, but it doesn't have to be that tricky, actually. But I guess we'll find out over the course of this episode what that means. It's just not only for my benefit, for anyone that's listening in that might be dealing with transaction costs for the first time or might still be quite new to the topic. Maybe if you could outline sort of what transaction costs are, what the background is, and obviously why it's relevant to asset management firms. Okay, yes, sure. Transaction costs arise when you trade. So basically, when you enter an investment or exit an investment, you pay money for market makers to take you out of the position or put you into the position or to any buyer or seller. There's simply, as you would do in selling or buying a house, that there are certain costs that can be explicit transaction costs, like brokerage fees or taxes that you have to pay when you enter or exit a position, but also implicit costs. Like I said before, we're simply the buying price, so the offer price or the selling price and the bid price aren't the same. So if a tester share trades at, let's just say for simplicity reasons, at 100, you might have to buy it at 150 cents and you might have to sell it at 99 and 50 cents. So there's a bit of $1, which is causing transaction costs. It's as simple as that. Tila, I have to say that sounds relatively simple. Why do you think there has been so many issues around transaction costs? Obviously, it's a topic that the industry has been dealing with for quite a few years. It seems that there's still some struggles around this, and both with, let's say, boutique firms, but also large fund houses. Just for the listeners, I mean, obviously, the background was MIFID II and the PRIPS regulation that sort of introduced the concept of disclosing transaction costs separately. You always had to sort of take into account transaction costs. But why is there a struggle with this still? It's been a few years. It sounded quite simple what you described. It becomes a lot trickier if you don't use my example of Tesla shares, but if you take a liquid instruments, for example, where there is no clear price. So you might have sold at 99.50, but what was actually the mid price or the offer price? Was you know was it 99.50 to 150 or what or was it very, very different. And that's where the trouble comes in, to find out the mid at the time of trading. And on top of that, it's not just one trade that you've just done that you need to find this out for. It will be thousands of trades over the last year that you will need to find this out for. So you're saying, you know, on the 12th of February at one o'clock, you traded, you know, 10 million notional of obscure illiquid instrument. Can you tell me what you think your transaction cost might have been? So what price did you sell it? You do know that. But what was the mid at that time? Very, very difficult to find out. And that is where all the trouble is really starting with this regulation. 
So, Tilly, would you say it's essentially a problem of accessing or getting access to the right data to make those, you know, calculations? Uh, is that sort of the core challenge behind this, or do you think there are further challenges, maybe even with the actual calculations? The main challenge, I think, the regulation is a good regulation. I do, I do believe, and I've heard other opinions, but I do believe it, it comes from a very good place, and and it wants to find out if asset managers are for one maybe over trading, you know, causing costs that are unnecessary. I think it's good, even though that might not be the idea of the regulation. It's good that asset managers also have an internal view on on how much they're spending on on uh, on trading. But um, yeah, to your question, is the problem then then getting the data? And I think that's why the regulation didn't really look into the practicalities of it. Is quite simply, it costs a lot of money getting even a rough idea of the data for the let's say to to my example uh, to, on that particular day for a particular instrument at a particular time. So a lot of us for a lot of asset manager, it, it's it's very time consuming, but it's also very costly to find out a good idea of a mint. Also, on top of it, speaking from my experience as a market maker, which I've done for many, many years, it isn't even clear, not to any data provider, what the mint might have been at that time. It is quite simply not a number that is there. It's a number that can be guessed. And very good guesses are quite expensive or very difficult. A wild guess a lot of times, and then maybe. The whole regulation doesn't really work out as planned. How are you seeing firms dealing with this? It's almost like you either have to pay for expensive opinions, uh, as per what you described, or you have to be very good at uh, making almost a guesstimate, if I can call it that. So uh, how do you deal with that? And I'm assuming there's probably different approaches to this that you're seeing. So I think the very simplified method which I've seen being used quite a lot is using a spread matrix. So you have various asset classes and there's a there's an estimate what the bid offer per asset class is and you apply that or half of the bid offer spread to, to your trade uh, notional and you say, you know, that's roughly what I think if I trade it in and out of, you know, interest rate swaps and, and they trade on one basis point bid offer, let's say, then, then that's my transaction cost. That's probably not the worst idea, but it's again, very simplified. It's It, it doesn't really consider some quite impactful uh, metrics uh, to the spread, which is like DVO1 or, or Notional. It, it's just, it just applies one number across the board, which doesn't make too much sense. So it's not very comparable if various clients use instruments that sound similar or are part of the same asset class, but actually would still trade a very different bit offer spreads. That's what a lot of people are doing, and it kind of makes sense. The other preferred method by the regulator is the slippage method which says you know do try to find out what the mid was and do try to find out pretty much what, what the mid to your price uh, difference is but that because intraday da- data is expensive the workaround is that you're allowed to use opening prices or if that's not available closing prices but markets move a lot obviously from, from the start of the day to the by the time you trade so on average if you trade a lot then maybe it averages out quite well. But in a lot of cases, you're simply capturing market movements and not your transaction costs. So if you take very, very liquid instruments where transaction costs are minimal, you're going to have massive volatility um, by calculating from opening price to to your trade price. And that's nothing to do with your transaction costs. That's simply random. The way to do this isn't good enough, to be entirely honest. 
Definitely. I think just before we go into sort of what's coming down the line, I had a few questions on sometimes clients when they do their calculations, they come up with zero transaction costs or even negative transaction costs. And, you know, at the surface of it, that sounds quite strange that you actually have a negative or zero cost for doing transactions. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I do get a few questions sometimes from asset management firms. Negative transaction costs do exist. It is possible to be able to trade through the mid, uh, as you would call it. You can, for example, if you're very clever, and I've seen that too. I mean, so, some clients, if they're very, very tuned into their transaction execution practice, basically, let's say they find a dealer that really needs to sell, back to the Tesla share example, that really needs to sell Tesla shares in a big block of it. That basically, the client acts as a market maker themselves and says, you know, I'll take that big block of you right away, and, but I will have to take it below the mid price. Instead of usually, if I would approach you, I'd have to buy it above the mid price. So it's possible to enter position with negative transaction costs. To the possibility, however, to be someone, an asset manager who needs to get in and out of positions every day, all year long, to end up across the board with negative Transaction costs are as an average is, is highly unlikely, actually. So what could have happened, of course, is that to the example of earlier of slippage methodology, it, it might just have been a, a random thing. So if you let's say you let's say you were buying instruments across the year and the market kept dropping throughout the year, and you're using the previous day close. So Basically, if it was a constant drop every time you trade, it would be lower than last day's price because the market keeps on dropping and you keep on buying. Then it will look at the end of the year like you had, for example, negative transaction costs. And that's not because you executed great. It's simply because of what the market had done. I think that goes in line with what you were saying earlier, that you're not actually tracking the transaction costs, but rather the movements of the market. It seems that there's some changes coming around the corner around transaction costs. And maybe if you could elaborate a bit on what that might look like and what changes asset management firms can expect. So from the beginning of 2025, clients will have to record the mid at the time of trade, which makes a lot of sense. It's going to be obviously more work for clients. They could theoretically be doing that now. They will hopefully get some help, external help by um, broker dealers, you know, investment banks, market makers, extern other external help from data providers to give them an idea. I think one thing, however, that I'm mindful of is probably people go for the letter. They will probably not actually record the mids all the time unless there's some regulation that really enforces it at the time of trade. But they might still go back to the data providers and say, you know, I, I did those trades this week. Can you provide me with the exact mid for that time of the day? And those data providers will claim that they do know, but from my experience, it's also simply not the case. They, they just can't know. A lot of those trades are done OTC. They're done in a very opaque market. These are instruments that trade once a year, twice a year maybe, and away from, from any uh, data provider's knowledge. So for a data provider to have a guess of what the mid might have been there is probably a very good guess. I mean, they have good algorithms, they have good systems, can still be... Very wrong, however, nevertheless. So I think it's getting there. It's still going, the practicalities are, and, and the, that it's not going to be spot on. So the question then remains really, is this all working as intended? And it's right, you're trying to protect um, the retail investors or investors here to tell them, listen, this is, you know, you should be aware of this number. Um, however, what I've seen is that some investors 
and especially retail investors don't fully understand where this is coming from. So the regulator asked transaction costs to be a part of reduction in yield, but actually transaction costs aren't reducing the yield. The costs, if if you have entry costs or management fees, that yes, it does in a way directly impact your yield. Transaction costs are usually only a byproduct of enhancing the yield. So you would not have arrived at the yield that you're getting without the transactions that have cost you some transaction costs. So if you're having a 5% return performance or return, and you're saying you've had 1% transaction costs, that doesn't mean you would have ended up with 6% if, if it wasn't for the trades. Yeah, I, I don't think we're looking at perfect transaction costs anytime down the line. It'll probably be an evolving model, and hopefully one day we get to sort of a more perfect version of transaction costs. Um, but it seems that there's progress being made at the same time. So hopefully in a few years when we catch up on our podcast, we'll be talking about how transaction costs are now <laughs> really something you can rely on in more detail. But it might also be that we never get there, that we only get as close as possible. So we'll have to see. Yeah, where that goes. Um, Tilo, just a uh, last question from my side. I mean, you know, if I was someone who was sort of in charge with dealing with transaction costs in the context of, you know, PRIPS kids or EMTs or EPTs, any tips you would have for me? Obviously, this is a complicated topic. It's a topic that goes into more what you would call maybe the portfolio management trading side of things, but it has an impact on the legal and compliance aspects as well. So any thoughts for someone who has to deal with transaction costs in terms of EMTs and kids, uh, what would any piece of advice you would want to give them? One one piece of advice that I would give is to look at this slightly different than they might look at other bits and pieces of EMTs and EPTs. This one takes a lot more thought, manual input, it's not binary. This one isn't a right or wrong. So you, you're basically just trying to do as well as you can. And, and the regulator also gives you that room. So they're saying, you know, if you don't have the data, go beginning of the day. If you don't have that data, go to closing or end of the day. So ob- if you don't do that, go to the spread method. So it, it's quite clear this is this is um, much more of a spectrum um, that you can move on. And so I think... That's how this is supposed to be approached. And I mean, obviously, another piece of advice would be come to us. <laughs> we can help you with that uh, bit of advice. I've been trading markets for a good, good 15 years. I've been running a trading desk. I have other colleagues who have similar experience, not as many years, but come from a similar area. We obviously have the legal and regulatory expertise that we've built up over many years. And that's also what I guess a lot of clients know us for. And that combined leaves us in a fairly good position um, to do this. And we have been doing this. We also spotted quite a few things that we like to do differently from what we've seen as, as practice out there. Together with the client, I think we can come up with, with what the regulator and the client can see is right. I think that's a good piece of advice. I mean, Thilo, what I normally, uh, just to weigh in here, uh, what I discuss with clients sometimes is, obviously, you know, it might make sense to use a third party to uh, validate some of their calculations, or at least do a separate calculation just to compare almost the two opinions on transaction costs and, you know, how much of a difference there is. Um, It's also, you know, sometimes it makes sense to use, maybe if you use an external provider to do the calculations, well as produce some of the outputs like EMTs, PRIPS kids, is to use the same provider so you have consistency at least in terms of the approach and thinking 
across your fund range you know we have i know there are many fund houses that might use different administrators for example across different funds to do this and that leads to very different opinions or approaches towards this and that means the fund range typically has uh, the transaction costs can vary quite a bit not only because of the strategy or the instruments being used but because of the methodology being applied or the approach towards calculating the transaction costs so i think it's always good to you know try and validate either your internal or external approach uh, and try to streamline it uh, generally and uh, like we said this is not a perfect science this is more of an art almost <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it's an ever evolving art if i can sort of summarize it that way at least from my side yeah yeah thank you konal and i think even though i said this is this is not exact but as a spectrum that you can move on um at the same time i've just in line with what you've just said we've also seen some approaches being a bit maybe too lenient and then going for spread method uh, only and even there without any questions asked uh, adopting those spreads so that's probably not right either so yeah it, it, is, it is quite a spectrum but it shouldn't be taken lightly um, and like you said probably getting a, a second opinion and and trying to use as much slippage methodology as possible because that is the number one method and also in 2025 that's what's going to be used almost entirely i have a funny feeling this won't be the last podcast we're doing on transaction costs we'll probably be speaking about this topic very very soon it's definitely not the end even the new rts are making a few changes these aren't going to be the last changes i'm i'm very very confident about that thank you so much silo take care thank you for now You reached the end of another episode of the Legal Zeitgeist podcast. Connect with us at zeitler.group to subscribe. Thank you for listening. The Legal Zeitgeist podcast is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. Professional legal advice should be obtained before taking or refraining from any action as a result of the contents of this podcast. All rights reserved.